I'm currently at a uh, drone position about 15 kilometers from the front line. Um, we have been inside of a small makeshift dugout where a bunch of Ukrainian soldiers are monitoring a drone feed. We watched them launch it. It's a reconnaissance drone. Was that outgoing? It's okay? It's okay. Ukrainian? It's ours. Okay. <laughs> I moved quickly. That's my colleague Siobhan O'Grady reporting from the front lines of the war in Ukraine. We watched them launch uh, a large Laleka drone from this position, and it was flying about 30 or 40 kilometers away to Russian-held territory to try to find specific targets. So this drone is not actually targeting specific um, specific systems. It is just providing better reconnaissance. Siobhan has spent two years reporting on this war. This weekend marked the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's hard to even remember this now, but at the time, many signs pointed to this being a brief and brutal war. U.S. intelligence and Russian intelligence predicted Ukraine would fall in a matter of days. You know, what strikes me the most is the extent to which this has really been a roller coaster in terms of expectations for the outcome of the conflict and really the performance and ability of Ukraine to hold off this far larger military. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. And she says, at first, Ukraine was exceeding everyone's expectations. Ukraine was riding high. It was backed by this global coalition, strong support, unprecedented steps mm -hmm. in Europe. And it seemed really plausible that Ukraine was going to achieve its goal of getting its territory back, or at least most of it that had been seized by Russia. But now that the fighting is entering its third year, Missy says things look very different for Ukraine. We've gone from there to a moment now where really the future of the war is in doubt. We have Ukraine outgunned on the battlefield. Russia has been able to sustain the, the military capacity in a way that Ukraine can't at this moment. The Biden administration has not been able to pass an aid package, and um, really the outlook is pretty dire. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, February 26th. Today, I talked to Missy about the state of the war in Ukraine. She breaks down the importance of U.S. military aid, but also the role Europe is playing here. And we talk about the stakes if Russia wins. So, Missy, now that we are entering the third year of this war— between Russia and Ukraine and, and inside of Ukraine, I would really find it so helpful to just step back and understand what the state of affairs are inside of Ukraine right now. So can you just paint a picture for me? What, Where do things stand inside of Ukraine right now? Yeah, so Ukraine right now is essentially in a holding pattern that it's been in since 2023, where it launched this big counteroffensive where it hoped to take back much of the remaining Russian-held territory, at least break through some significant areas. And that did not materialize mm. as ho as hoped um, for, for a host of reasons. And right now, basically, Ukraine is on the defensive. Russia launched its own subsequent counteroffensive, and mm. it managed to break through and take a strategic city 
um, just in the last week. And Ukrainian forces are really struggling. The The soldiers are exhausted. They're struggling to uh, uh, marshal the, the manpower that they need. Zelensky is not able to get the same kind of military support that he did a year ago. And uh, there are a lot of questions about how long they can last. Do we know what the casualty count is right now? The Zelensky government came out and um, made a very unusual announcement saying that there had been 31,000 Ukrainian troops killed. And, you know, we don't have any way to verify that. But American officials have said that, you know, there at least are tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops that have been killed. Um, You know, that it seems like that's plausible. And, you know, Russia also does not divulge the number of its casualties in Ukraine. Um, But American officials have estimated that it's probably higher than that. Mm. Um, But in any event, 31,000, if that is the figure, would be, you know, a significant blow for Ukraine and uh, thinking about its ability to muster and sustain an ongoing military effort. Mm -hmm. So it seems like Ukraine is really caught on the back foot right now, and things seem quite dire. What about Russia? Are they gaining momentum? And what's the mood among those forces? Because I feel like in the beginning of the war, there was a lot of talk about Russian uh, troops, they're being low morale and them having high casualty counts in part because Ukraine was viewed as this underdog and this expectation that they would be defeated quite quickly and that did not turn out to be the case. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the mood in Moscow is also somewhat of a roller coaster. You know, Putin and his advisors went into the war assuming that they would it would be sort of a cakewalk um, and that, you know, there would be a lot more support among some Ukrainians than there ended up being, clearly. Now, while there's been huge problems with morale and obviously a lot of sort of poor tactical decisions on the battlefield, we, we are at a moment where Putin can point to, you know, this recent breakthrough um, along the front line where the Russian uh, war economy has really been able to um, e- increase mm. a production of key military items like artillery and tanks in a way that sort of defied the expectations and, and the goal of these widespread Western sanctions that, um, that came about after the invasion. And Putin, you know, is heading into another presidential election next month and is sort of riding high. He has the ability to say, um, you know, I've sustained this war. For some reason, everyone had the illusion that Russia could be defeated on the battlefield. Because of arrogance, because of a pure heart, but not because of a great mind. And he's gotten, he's had to you know, get support from Iran and from North Korea. Um, But he has hung on and can claim some sort of victory to his people. Well, and how how did that happen if Western sanctions were trying to target and prevent this sort of war economy from picking back up within Russia? How, How did Putin get to this point? How was he able to build up momentum and have what he needed to do this? Well, he has the advantage of being able to direct uh, a lot of the economy and economic decisions in a way that, you know, the democratic systems in the West aren't able to do. You know, I think that they've devoted a large part of their economy to production of weaponry and all of that and without having to worry about the citizen backlash in a, in a way that leaders in Europe 
might have to. But, you know, clearly there's an inability to evade sanctions, um, and that's something that the Biden administration is trying to address. What we're hearing is that the U.S. Treasury Department says the sanctions will target the Kremlin's war machine, specifically more than 500 targets that federal officials say are contributing to Russia's repression, human rights abuses, and aggression against Ukraine. These include drone and... Just on Friday, they announced a new big package of sanctions, and and that's their hope is to really crack down on uh, Russia's ability to benefit from the energy exports that it has continued since the war began. Mm. And then let's talk about international aid to Ukraine, military aid to Ukraine, because on one side, there's the sanctions against Russia, but then there's this support for Ukraine. At first, it seemed like the United States was one of the biggest financial backers of this effort on behalf of Ukraine. And where does that support stand right now? Yeah, well, the United States has been the largest single provider of military aid by far since the beginning of the war, you know, more than $40 billion in security support to Ukraine. But, you know, European countries have also given a lot, and they have given um, sort of general financial support. They've welcomed millions at one time of Ukrainian refugees. And overall now, the European pledges kind of exceed what the United States has mm. has pledged in terms of military Collectively. Collectively and and uh, non-military aid. But what Ukraine really needs right now is artillery, you know, uh, air defense interceptors and other things just to sort of survive during this critical period as Europe tries to build up its defense industrial base. And, you know, the, the question, I think, is the timing of delivery of, of this military aid that it needs literally to respond to Russian mm-hmm. artillery fire to keep its cities safe from Russian missiles and, and uh, Russian-operated drones and all of that. So while the United States has been a huge backer, President Biden's inability to secure passage of this big additional package for Ukraine, $60 billion, is a huge handicap and has injected this massive note of uncertainty into the the ongoing trajectory of the war. And my understanding is it's some Republicans who have blocked this in the House, led by Speaker Mike Johnson, and have made it difficult to pass. So why is that? And what are Democrats trying to do to show support for Ukraine? So basically, the the package is blocked in the House, and we have the Speaker Johnson, who hasn't brought this aid to the floor for a vote, and it's tied up in all of these sort of intra-Republican negotiations and different visions and, and rules that make it much more difficult for any speaker to defy members of their own party. So it's it's really a very parochial political Mm -hmm. question. You know, there are certainly substantive differences within the Republican Party, especially about how much aid the United States should be giving to Ukraine, how much this conflict really matters to the United States, and whether or not it should be tied to things like the southern border. But, you know, there is also strong support within the Republican Party for assisting Ukraine with the idea that Putin violated Ukraine's sovereignty. But right now, this is very much tied up in a, Mm -hmm. a U.S. political feud, essentially. And so, you know, we we have the Biden administration promising that the United States will continue to stand by Ukraine. And we also have leading Democrats in Congress saying the same thing, even though they can't really show them the money. As part of the effort to show support from Ukraine, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was in Ukraine, traveled to Ukraine over the weekend with some other Democratic colleagues. And he actually got on the phone with a Ukrainian soldier who was able to tell him firsthand about the challenges they're facing on the front line. 
And we were told by the general leaders of your army, as well as President Zelensky, about the shortage of 155 millimeter uh, ammunition. Hello, Mr. Senator. First of all, thank you for your kind of words of support. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, currently, as you mentioned, we really experience shortage of shells. I can't uh, tell you how painful for us it is to see enemy uh, constantly every day and not be able to do anything with it. Right. Well, it's why we need, why we desperately need this. After the break, Missy tells us what it was like inside a munitions factory in Finland. As she explains why it's been so difficult for European countries to get weapons to Ukrainian soldiers. We'll be right back. So, Missy... I wanted to talk more about Ukraine's other allies, especially those in Europe, and the state of the aid that they are providing. Can can you lay that out for me? Yeah, so European nations have really come together since the 2022 invasion, and they have made unprecedented decisions in terms of providing military assistance, in terms of jettisoning some uh, economic and energy ties with Russia. You know, it's been this really massive sea change within Europe. And, uh, but, you know, they, the continent is also facing some, at the same time, they're facing these challenges and really mobilizing and translating that political support hmm. into concrete production and deliveries of the military aid that Ukraine so desperately needs. And while that didn't matter as much while the United States was, you know, continuing this this really robust pipeline of weapons and artillery and all the United these other States things, produces that regularly. Yeah. Right? And the United States has a lot of things in its stockpiles that it was mm. able to donate. You know, the United States has also contracted out the production of new arms for Ukraine. But it while it didn't matter so much while the the US supply was continuing now that it's suspended Europe's ability to ramp things up quickly enough to help mm. Ukraine really becomes a central question. So so what does that look like? What does it look like when a European nation is trying to ramp up production? I went to an artillery factory in southwest Finland, which is part of a, a company called NAMO, a Norwegian-Finnish company that's one of the biggest artillery producers in Europe. This factory is one of the places that now has really intensified its production. They are now currently working uh, 24-7 wow. to increase the, the production of artillery. There's just huge demand, and they um, are trying to get European Union funds to help establish um, a new factory, a new, a new build, building, I should say. And that's sort of reflective of this larger scramble going on across Europe. And the question is, can it happen fast enough? And, you know, it, it's interesting because it's tied up in sort of the history of Europe and security expectations that now go back decades, which, hmm. you know, was what happened essentially after the Cold War is that there was an assumption that there wasn't going to be a major conflict on the European continent. And so there was a major disinvestment by European countries as they, you know, they when they thought about security, they thought about these sort of external missions, external threats, like, you know, you saw NATO countries fighting in Afghanistan hmm. or going to the Sahel. But, but not on European soil. They weren't planning for big conventional wars in hmm. Europe so that, you know, the need to 
invest in artillery uh, munitions, the need to invest in tanks uh, was an air defense was not um, thought about in the same way. And so the defense industries shrank over those um, decades. And now they're trying to ramp it up, but there is all sorts of systemic constraints that they have to overcome. And those could include the fact that, you know, in comparison to the United States, where you have one big buyer, the U.S. military, and you have, you know, it's one country with one set of regulations. Um, The United States has a big market. We have um, state ownership of some munitions facilities. For example, in the EU, you have much smaller markets, much more fractured industry. And so that has, despite uh, lots of different initiatives to try to um, incentivize joint production and and co-production between different countries, it's just a much more difficult, inherently more difficult problem. And so I think leaders in Europe are having to um, deal with that and also deal with the question of how much do we think we should be spending on defense? Right. That's been a big challenge in Europe for decades now. You have a, a situation where now 18 of uh, NATO's countries are expected to reach the 2% threshold, 2% of GDP threshold for um, for defense spending. For many years now, leaders in the United States have complained that, you know, there isn't adequate, as they say, burden sharing in Mm. Europe, that countries within NATO, although they're supposed to be spending a minimum of 2% of their GDP on defense, many of them, including some of the biggest countries like Germany, have never met that that, um, benchmark. I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. And so since the war in Ukraine happened, there's been a big sort of realization, oh my gosh, we really need to do this. We need to actually devote more money, not to, you know, other priorities like education and housing and on all of that, we need to de- put this money into defense. And so there are a, l- a number of countries are now meeting that benchmark for the first time. Um, but, you know, there is a question of, of will that be sustained? Can, you know, the, the, will the government sort of pony up the money to open new production lines and factories that were only producing X amount. Now they need to um, like, can they produce even, X times two. And, yeah, like can they even like physically ramp up? And is there even the capacity to ramp up to provide what needs to be There is created? a lot of investment happening and the, the goal is to have um, – to create those new production lines, build new factories. But even when the money is allocated and it's not just promised, even when it's allocated, you know, that buildup takes time. Right. And so that, and then, then we get back to the central question is, can this happen fast enough for Ukraine in the absence of American donations of existing stockpiles? Can the Amer- the European buildup happen fast enough? Well, it sounds like the the lack of or the pulling back of U.S financial or artillery support is putting extra pressure on Europe right now. But it's also this question for a lot of European nations, how do you plan for something that you really can't totally predict even into the future, right? Yeah, I I think um, clearly it puts a lot more pressure on European countries. And it sort of begs the question of right now we're seeing this very acute threat from Russia, especially, you know, the countries that have been the strongest in terms of spending um, on defense and, you know, making moves to create new production capability are the countries in the eastern flank because Mm. clearly they see themselves as the most vulnerable to Russia, Russia's reach, you know, any potential moves in the future by Russia. 
But it begs the question of, you know, will we sustain this over time? And it gets sort of back uh, to the tension that we see between these private sector companies, you know, the private defense companies. You know, they say, okay, well, we're, we're willing to put some money into opening new production lines or facilities, but only if we have guarantees from uh, from governments that this is going to be sustained investment and that two mm. years from now you're not going to decide that you actually only need a third of that production. And so there's this is sort of being, um, this is playing out right now as part of the whole effort and the whole realization of what Europe can provide to Ukraine in the near term and the long term. Missy, I think it's worth also stepping back and and just thinking about what are the stakes here if Ukraine falls and Russia wins? Because, you know, given the conversation around the political will in the United States and then also the tactical capabilities of Europe to support Ukraine, what would happen if Ukraine were to lose this war? Yeah, well, that's probably the biggest thing that President Biden has been trying to underscore and use as part of his message uh, to Congress and to the American people about why they should, why it matters for the United States and its allies globally who are, you know, democracies in Ukraine's victory and its ability to fend off Russia. I want you to know that all the people of Ukraine to know as well, the American people have been with you every step of the way and we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. What you're doing, what you've achieved, it matters not just to Ukraine, but to the entire world. And together, I have no doubt, we'll keep the flame of liberty burning bright and the light will remain and prevail over the darkness. Basically, what they say is that if the West and Ukraine supporters allow Russia to prevail, that will not only empower uh, and enable future land grabs, future meddling by Russia. It has a you know now a long track record of of doing so um, in Georgia and you know it's been active in Syria and Libya and all these other places. It'll be a green light for 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 Putin to continue to do the kinds of things he's done in the past. And also will send a message to other autocrats and people who might think about, you know, stealing land, invading a, a neighboring country, or just, you know, um, define the global rules rules-based order as president. Biden would call it. And and the other thing that, you know, is a central part of that message, not just from Biden, but from from your Ukraine supporters in Europe, is that this is a good investment because it would be far more expensive for NATO to fight Russia. Mm. So if um, NATO countries allow Putin to win in Ukraine, then he might think, oh, I can sneak into um, Estonia or Lithuania or Poland or any of these countries that, you know, feel the most vulnerable. And then the United States and its NATO allies would be locked in a direct confrontation. Because those are NATO countries. Exactly. Mm -hmm. with, With Russia. And just think about the implications there. Russia is the world's largest nuclear power. And it is, Mm. you know, a massive conventional power as well. And just think about what that would mean for not only a military conflict, but global economic destabilization and all of that. So they're saying, look, we're getting a lot of bang for our buck here. That is a big part of Ukraine's argument, too. Mm. They're saying, you know, we're willing to fight this for you. We just need the bullets, essentially. Mm. And so that's that's a big part of the, the conversation about the stakes. Well, Missy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. 
Hungary's parliament voted Monday to let Sweden join NATO, which means Sweden could become NATO's 32nd member as soon as this week. Sweden has been trying to join the military alliance since the Ukraine war began. Hungary's objection was the final obstacle to what will now be a historic expansion of NATO. I wanted to share a couple of other stories that we're following today. Former President Donald Trump continues to consolidate power in his 2024 run for the White House. You probably saw on Saturday he beat Nikki Haley in the GOP primary in South Carolina. That's her home state. And today, the head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, announced her resignation. And this happened after weeks of pressure from Trump and his allies. And the Supreme Court heard oral arguments today in a pair of cases that could transform how social media networks operate. The court is reviewing laws passed in Florida and Texas intended to address allegations that these social media companies censor conservative viewpoints. The court's decision, which is likely to come by June, could have huge implications for online speech in the critical months before the presidential election. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick with help from Sabi Robinson. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. Thanks to Ben Pauker. And just one more thing I wanted to mention. If you listen to us regularly, if you rely on Post Reports to stay informed about the world, consider leaving a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is a great way to let other people learn about and discover our show. We really appreciate it. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.